Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. I am Liz, and I am joining you as usual from Central Virginia and the unceded ancestral lands of the Monica Nation. And I'm so glad that you are with me today. And before we jump in, I want to share with you a couple of reminders. Um, First, my book, Home to Her, Walking the Transformative Path of the Sacred Feminine, is available now from Womancraft Publishing. Uh, this book is, reflects my own exploration of sacred feminine wisdom, both from a historical perspective, as well as my lived experiences, and also the insights I've received from the many guests who have joined me on this show. So if you're interested, I would love for you to support my publisher, which is a small woman-owned business, Womancraft Publishing, by buying from them directly, or support your local bookstore and order it there, or order it on bookshop.org, which shares their proceeds with local and independent bookstores. And if you've read it and enjoyed it, I would be so grateful if you'd consider leaving a review for it on Amazon or Goodreads, because that's how the word gets out about these things, Um, and it helps other people find this work. And also, if you've read it and you want to share your reflections with me, please do. I, I, you know, like the the reason I wrote the book, at least in part, is I really wanted to be in conversation with people on this subject. So please feel free to reach out. I love hearing from you. And you can find me on Instagram at home to her. I also have a Facebook group called Home to Her as well. And you are welcome to jump in there and join the conversation about the sacred feminine that's happening right now. Two, we have about 8,000 members now from all over the world, which is kind of cool. Um, And then finally, if you're listening to the show and you like it, I would be so grateful for your reviews there too. iTunes reviews in particular help other people find the show. And given that this is a homegrown podcast on a niche subject, I can tell you that your reviews can and do make a huge difference. Um, I am officially going into my fourth year of hosting the show, and I am quite proud to say that Home to Her is now in the top 2.5% of all podcasts globally, which is pretty amazing especially because I don't have a sponsor or an advertising budget, which means this growth has all been slow and sweet and powered by people like you who are listening and sharing it with others. So thank you. And if you haven't yet written a review, but you feel called to do so, I would be ever grateful if you did. All right, that's enough with that. Let's get on with the show. So I, I say this every time. I'm really excited about my guest today. And I, I once again, I'm really excited about my guest today. Um, I came across her work years ago when she was the guest on another wonderful podcast called On Being, which if you aren't familiar with it, it kind of set a high bar for me, especially when I was thinking about starting a podcast. I find the host to just be really thoughtful um, and introspective and just deeply committed to honoring her guest work. And so um, anyways, to find a guest that's been on that show, I was like, whoa, this is a big deal. Um, And then I came across uh, her work again with a beautiful book of poetry that came out in 2022. And so one thing, if you've been listening to this show um, for a while, you might've picked up on the fact that the longer I do this, 
the more and more interested I am in understanding the sacred feminine from as many different perspectives, personal experiences, and faith traditions as possible. I think when I started this, I was kind of like had this push towards unity, like we all need to be seeing and feeling and experiencing the same thing, maybe because I didn't want to feel alone on this on this journey. And that is important. But um, I think what's even more interesting to me now is holding the multiplicity of the many ways in which people approach the sacred feminine and how they understand her. And it isn't about us all having the same experience. It's about holding the space for all those different experiences and what we can learn from each other. Um, And so one area that I have been curious about for a while now that I've only explored just a little bit on this show is the sacred feminine in Judaism and how it shows up there. And so I know that my guest today has a lot to share with us on this subject as well as lots of other things. So um, let me go ahead and introduce her to you now. Joy Layden's experience of being poetically mentored by the Shekinah. I tried, Joy. I can't get the, so you can do it for us. <laughs> the Shekinah resulted in the completion of a book-length sequence, Shekinah Speaks, published by Selva Oscura in spring 2022. Joy has also published nine other books of poetry, including recent National Jewish Book Award winner, The Book of Anna, and two Lambda Literary Award finalists, Impersonation and Transmigration as well as two works of creative nonfiction, National Jewish Book Award finalist Through the Door of Life, A Jewish Journey Between Genders, and Lambda Literary and Triangle Award finalist The Soul of the Stranger, Reading God and Torah from a Transgender Perspective, the first book-length work of Jewish trans theology. Her writing has been recognized with the National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, a Fulbright Scholarship, and American Council of Learned Societies Research Fellowship, and uh, I should have checked with you on how to pronounce this. So I'll do that as soon as I finish, Joy. And uh, Hadassah Brandi- Brandeis, did I get that? Okay. Uh, Hadassah Brandeis Institute Research Fellowship, among other honors. Episodes of her online conversation series containing multitudes are available at jewishlive.org backslash multitudes. And her writing is available at joyladen.wordpress. Com. If you didn't get all that, I'm going to put it in the show notes. So don't you worry. And Joy, thank you so much for being here. It's an honor, honor. And it's just such a privilege to have you with me. Thank you. I was so happy when I got your email reaching out. And um, I had not heard that you were doing this podcast. And I was not aware until connecting with you uh, that there is this larger community, I think community is overused, but there really are a lot of people who are interested in the divine feminine and and thinking about divine human relationships from that perspective. And um, that's exciting to me. You know, I always start by feeling um, completely like an oddball and idiosyncratic and, you know, the only one who's going to care about whatever it is I'm doing. And this is, you know, home to her also feels a little bit like home for me. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And I, I, I just love what you just said, because that pretty much in a nutshell is why I started the show. I'm like, I got to find somebody, there's got to be people out there that want to be in conversation or, um, you know, that want to hear about this subject. So if I start doing this podcast, will they show up and will I find the guest? And here I am going into the fourth year of the show. And, uh, yes, people are interested. And I, I don't know, I, I had this idea that maybe I'd run out of guests 
after the first year. And that has so not been the case. I think the list gets ever longer, actually. So we are not alone. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I would love to, and so just for your list, listeners' sakes, um, Joy and I had a little kind of pre-podcast conversation last week, which I knew is it, it's a good sign when um, I feel like it's starting to turn into, you know, the interview and I'm like, oh, wait, wait, we got to save all this for the recording. Um, but one of the things that I told her is that um, my first question is always about people's spiritual background. And that is something that I did kind of learn from this on being podcast, which I also like. But the reason I ask it is um, it's usually it's 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 an interesting entry point to me into our understanding of the sacred feminine, because um, we either started with some awareness of that or we didn't. And then that aspect showed up later. Um, regardless, I'd love to hear a little bit about your spiritual background and how you feel like that shaped um, you as a child and then maybe informed where you headed as an adult. Thank you. That is a great place to start. Um, and I don't know, I've talked, as you know, from the interview with uh, On Being, I've talked a lot about my spiritual autobiography, but I haven't talked about it really in quite this context. Mm. So I'm expecting to learn. When, um, when I was growing up, even as a very small child, I had two intertwined experiences of being different in ways that felt to me like they were dangerous in my family and in my culture. I grew up in a middle-class um, white Jewish home. It was still, the Holocaust was still really not that long ago. So my father had been able to buy a house in a red-lined neighborhood. So still no black people, but Jews were allowed to to buy there. So we grew up in a house that was much bigger than our income. And um, my family was not religious in it, I'm, or I'm not sure that if any of them were religious other than I was. It was that kind of thing. It was really like a secular, assimilated idea of Jewish identity. Although my mother was very proud of being Jewish and different in those ways, for her, it was really kind of ethnically rooted. Mm -hmm. and um, that was important for me, but it, it didn't help inform my understanding of God or religion. So I grew up with a sense of God as a living presence who was right there with me. And I didn't have anybody to teach me that I was wrong because my household wasn't part of um, an institutionalized form of Judaism as a religion. And so on the one hand, it was lonely to be the only person that I could see who had any sense that God was there. And on the other hand, I didn't grow up being taught that, you know, God isn't there for people like you. In my case, people like me included not only lonely and weird children, but also um, I was trans. I didn't have that word. Then, but I had, I knew from a very early age that my sense of female gender identification, my sense that in some way that I so can't explain, I really was a girl, mm. even though I was born male and raised male and living male, it didn't make any sense to me then, but still within the framework of binary gender, it still doesn't make any sense. Um, but that was my other secret. So to, in the secular context, 
saying, oh, I feel God's presence. God and I are talking with one another. You know, mm. God listens to me. That kind of marks you as crazy, at mm. best, I would say. Um, when I was in college, uh, I was upgraded to just stupid for mm. saying things like that. Yeah. Um, it was okay. My ego was so inflated that you know, I survived. <laughs> um, it might have even been good for me. Um, but the trans thing, I, uh, I, I also thought I was the only one of my kind to have this weird relation to gender. And I knew that because I was living in a world where to be human was to be either male or female in the sense there, the sex of your body and your gender, your sense of who you are, they align with one another. One determines the other. There wasn't even a separate word for gender, actually, when I was a very young child. Um, I knew that that would not only make me seem crazy, but in some way, I felt like it meant that I wasn't really human. Mm. And so those two things intertwined together. And I think that um, on the one hand, the social isolation, I felt like I was always hiding and lying in terms of my gender presentation. I knew my life depended on people taking me as a boy. And so even though that hurt me to present myself that way, that was absolutely what I was committed to doing. But that meant that I, nobody knew who I was. When I said I, when I said, I want blah, blah, blah to my mother, which I'm sure I did as interminably as any other child, um, I knew that my mother didn't know what I meant by I. That's a kind of loneliness. Like, and, and I felt like I was lying when I would say anything to other people in a certain kind of way because I was always presenting myself in terms of what they, who they thought I was but who I knew myself not to be. So that kind of intense isolation meant that I was not distracted from God's presence. And, and I think that this is, I, I think it is common for kids to have a sense of what is beyond the human. I think that that's a normal human capacity and proclivity. Different cultures shape it in different ways. My culture wasn't really shaping it at all. So I was free to fill in the blanks there. So I just, to me, what was beyond the human was a divine presence who was not human. Really what God in was beyond human, did not have a gender, did not have a body, you know, was not visible, but was there, but no one, could see God. God loved people, but people were not aware that God was there, so it was unreciprocated. To me, that made God and I have a lot in common. Wow. Because as a trans kid, and you know, again, healthy ego there, but you know, as a trans kid, that was the way that I felt. I don't fit into humanity. I don't have a face or a body that makes me visible or understandable to the people around me. I love people. I did. I was, you know, you know, severely traumatized and, you know, not what I would, you know, later consider a good person, if you can even say that about small children, but I had some problems, but I did love people and I wanted to be attached just the way other children do. And the, um, you know, knowing that I wasn't who other people thought I was and I had to keep it that way made it very hard to do that. So when I was talking to God, I was talking to the one person who actually knew what I meant when I said I. Mm -hmm. I felt understood 
I felt seen. I felt, I felt like it was not when I was a very young child, but at a certain point, I felt like God and I had this side deal. You know, Judaism is based on the idea of a covenant between God and the Jewish people. Very strange idea of entering into a legal agreement with, mm. you know, God. But that's a founding idea. But I, I felt like I wasn't really part of the Jewish people in the sense that if they knew who I was, no the actual Jewish people would want to include me. I felt like I really had a personal covenant with God, which was, you see me, you bear witness to me. And so it's my job to see and bear witness to you. You see me as real. My sense of myself is real to you. And so your presence, I need to bear witness to the reality of it to me. And that relationship sustained me. I can't imagine getting through. I mean, I was still not such a great childhood. There were, you know, suicide attempts, but, um, but I also never felt like I was completely alone. And I always had a model of a way of being, of being real, of being a person, and yet not fitting into human categories. And when I read the the Hebrew Bible, we we were not a Bible reading family, and we certainly didn't have a New Testament. But because I had this religious sense, I was drawn. Judaism was the nearest religion, and there was some, you know, uh, my mother wanted to make sure that we were part of the temple and everything. Anyway, unlike many children who have better social lives, I really loved going to religious services, and you know, I ate that up, and I would start to read. The, the Hebrew Bible, and I saw a portrayal of God there that really resonated with my experience of God. I saw a God who keeps trying, really, with limited success and often tragic results, to have relationships with people who can't perceive or understand or even remember that God is there. Mm. And God gets very angry about this and you know, sometimes genocidally angry. Um, but I kind of liked that. I know that's supposed to be a big theological problem, problem with theodicy. And Jewish God, actually, God is more vulnerable than angry. But, but what I liked about it was I also, I knew the anger that you come, that comes from being there and nobody sees you. Nobody knows you're there. Nobody has a clue of how to really engage you in a relationship when that's why you're there. You want to be with them. But I turned that into these suicidal feelings, whereas God had, to me, an enviable ability to express anger outward in a healthy way. It didn't bother me that people died by thousands, particularly, because I, I identified with God in this scenario. Yeah, that's right. People should know you're there. <laughs> um, so fortunately, wow. God never gets suicidally depressed. Imagine what a Bible would be like with a God who responded the way I was responding. <laughs> wow. Um, so as you can see, this relationship with God starts from what I still think as an adult is a, um, a true perception that the divine, whatever, however we conceive it, is beyond human categories like gender. 
I mean, I didn't have the word gender or concept of gender, but I, it was clear to me that if you don't have a body, you can't be male or female in the way that my culture was defining it. It just didn't make any sense. And that was reassuring to me because it, like I said, it meant I could be a person and though not fitting into a gender. But many, many years later, so I kept having a relationship with God and I grew up and I'm, you know, writing poetry and still in the closet. I'm still living as a man. And I had come across references to the Shekhinah, who is the, the name for um, the, the feminine divine, as, you, as you're calling it, or um, I think what Jewish mystical tradition would call the, the female or feminine aspect of the divine. Um, but it's not really developed in the liturgy. And I didn't, wasn't a scholar, so I didn't come across the sources. But I read enough footnotes and stuff to, to get the general idea that, that the Shekhinah was the name for the aspect of God that is not out there, transcending and judging and you know making floods and all this kind of stuff. Um, the Shekhinah is the aspect of God that is right here with each of us and is gendered feminine. Mm. And when I started writing about her, it was as a metaphor that I could safely use to express my sense of female gender identification. It really wasn't about my relationship with God, which was outside gender, right? Mm. It was, but I thought, yeah, this, the thing about the Shekhinah, she's always there. She never goes away no matter what's going on. And that was the thing about my female gender identification. It was never good for me to have it. You know, it was never a plus or an advantage, but it would never go away. And it was also the Shafina is associated with images like fountains and gardens and ascent, you know, uh, bell sounds, the sound of wings rushing, mm. wedding canopy. Um, these are all images that start to collect around the Shekhinah as Jewish tradition develops her. And that was the way, you know, for me, my female gender identification, I couldn't live it, but that was where the good stuff of life was. I knew that I couldn't access it without tapping into that. And so it felt like the Shekhinah was something I could write about without anybody saying, oh, you're coming out as transgender. So. I wrote a couple of poems that were like that. And so they were kind of pretend religious poems. And I felt bad about it because I was pretending to have this religious meditation when I knew I was actually meditating about something else. But that's the way it works when you make art in the closet. Um, blues musicians would do the same things. I think uh, slaves would sing spirituals with these double meanings. You can't express how you really are feeling uh, in an oppressive system, you use code that means one thing to you and people like you and will read as something different to people who are oppressing you. So I did that for a long time until, and I had, um, you know, I started living as myself. That kind of shifted my relationship with God in a number of ways. I also grew up, which I think was good for everybody. And, um, I continued to be interested in theology. I continued to write about the 
Hebrew Bible and how Jewish identity intertwined with trans identity. But I wasn't writing about the Shekhinah. So again, I'm a God doesn't have gender person. Until I was invited to speak at a symposium called She. Um, there's a um, disembodied Judaism, something or other at the University of Colorado Boulder, is a very Boulder thing, does this thing and they were doing one on the Shekhinah. And um, so I thought, yeah, you know, I'll dust off these old poems, but I should really write something new. And I started to do that and I really loved those things. But I'd done so much theological thinking that afterward when I went back to them, I was really unhappy with them mm -hmm. because I thought this is really like idolatry. This is me making a little puppet God who will say exactly what I think God should say in the way I think God should say it. This is not the Shekhinah, whatever the Shekhinah is. And I felt something I'd never felt before. I felt longing to hear what the Shekhinah would say. This was strange because I always felt like, you know, not that God talks to me the way God talks to Moses in the Bible or something like that. But when I'm talking with God or pouring out my heart to God, I don't feel that there's no response. You know, I hear laughter. There's a lot of laughter. That's, you know, always a mixed blessing, but you know, really like, is that is that supportive laughter or are you and your little problems laughter or <laughs> absolutely it's both because yeah. it's you know look at the way i'm seeing you god is you know when i talk to god god's whatever god however god responds it's always try on how i see you in other words try to step outside your littleness where there's so much suffering hmm. and not lose yourself but just enter into this largeness where you also exist. Mm. And that, so that laughter is liberating. It is a little bit, you know, maybe mean. It's not nice for the creator of the universe to laugh at creatures. But in another way, you know, laughter dissolves boundaries. Laughter dissolves binaries. Laughter is an invitation mm -hmm. to think in ways that are larger than we do. Sometimes there are other kinds of responses. Well, I never thought of myself as being frozen out by God in the way that some people do. Like Ingmar Bergman does these anguished early films about longing for God's voice and God's silence. It was not something I felt was a problem, but suddenly as I looked at these poems that were travesties of what they were pretending to be, all of a sudden I felt a longing to hear what the Shekhin would say. And by this point, I knew more about Jewish tradition, and I knew that the Shekhinah doesn't get to speak. So there's no examples of, you know, the God in the Hebrew Bible gets to talk a lot. The, the male-identified aspect of God, the transcendent judgy God, gets to speak a lot in post-biblical sources, rabbinic discussions and stuff. There are different kinds of imaginations of it. The Shekhinah is just imagined as a silent presence. and I knew enough to realize that that's because the Shekhinah in the Jewish tradition was a, I like to think of it as a product of a thousand year long one night stand between the Jewish theological imagination and the gender binary. Mm -hmm. So as Jewish theology got more and more invested in a transcendent distant male 
God. It's really not the God you see in the, in the Hebrew Bible. We, that's a retrospective projection. But as it got more invested in that, and that was important because remember, the Romans had destroyed everything. They'd you know, killed or exiled about a million people. They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They made sure Jews would never go back to it. So you needed a God who was at a safe distance from human history and human suffering. But as the people who brought us Christianity know, they were, they were among those Jews. The people who brought us Christianity were also Jews who lived through the Roman destruction, persecution. Yeah. They knew that there is a longing for a God who really understands human life and human suffering. A God whose love not only transcends the human, but which we can recognize in our limited human ways. So by the time the rabbis get around to wrestling with this problem, Christianity has become quite a successful religion. I don't think Jews would have ever gone the incarnation route, but that was foreclosed by, you know, the, the potential for that among, in Jewish tradition had already been exploited by people who created Christianity. Jews were already non-Christians and Christians were non-Jews. So what they did was they went back to the, and there have been some talk about this, but there's a verb in the Hebrew Bible. Again, God is not consistently gendered at all, but grammatically God's almost always male, but not always. And one of the verbs in, it's, uh, has a female gendering for God is the verb for dwell. When it says God dwells among the people of Israel, God dwells in the tabernacle, that is a female verb. It's shachem, shachanti, you know. Um, it, that, it's a feminine verb form. And the rabbis built that out into the concept of the shekhinah, which is the aspect of God that dwells among people. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, it's not an individual thing. But it is, you know, remember, one of the things that pisses God off in the Hebrew Bible is like people grumbling they don't like the food. That's how close God is dwelling among the people. Mm. You know, I never think of God like getting upset if I say, I am so tired of hamburger, you know, but that's basically what happens in the Hebrew Bible. So, but they built this out into an idea of a Shekhinah who is a feminine aspect and, you know, the way the gender binary works, male and female are mutually exclusive opposites. So if you want to know what female is, it's the opposite and lesser of the qualities that are ascribed to the male. So masculine aspect of God talks and has power and acts, judges. The female aspect of God dwells with people, doesn't speak, but suffers what we suffer, dances at our weddings, rejoices is really with us in our each of our human feelings. And so this way of understanding God is not saying God is feminine or even that, you know, if you see God, you'll notice this pink side and this blue side or anything like that, right? But what it is, is it's using binary gender, which is structures our most intimate relationships. It's using it to imagine God in a way that helps us feel close to God to help us feel that God understands us and is present with us. But that idea of God was also hampered by the misogyny that's built into the tra traditional forms of binary 
gender, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm coming to this and I'm like, yeah, if the Shekhinah is always there and always with each of us, really has a ground level view of each human being, I suddenly really wanted to know what she was saying. Because I knew that if the Shekhinah was divine, was really an aspect of God, she is not bound by gender binary limitations. She would look at the idea that being, being the feminine aspect, she has to be lesser and opposite. She would like, screw that. Mm. You know, I'm, you know, I'm God, just like, you know, I'm God in the key of the, of the feminine, but I'm God. So I had a hunger to hear God in a way that I'd never experienced it before. And so I didn't want to write poems that gave my idea of the Shekhinah because I knew that I knew what my ideas were. They weren't the real thing. I wanted the real thing. I wanted to turn my poetry over in some way and allow the Shekhinah to speak through it. And I didn't even know what that meant at first, but I knew it meant I had to use words that weren't mine. And so I decided with some prompting that I would say came from the Shekhinah um, to, to take build poems by taking words from two very different kinds of texts. One is from chapters of Isaiah, particularly late Isaiah, these, where there are great divine monologues. Um, so it's certified divine language, right? It's in the Bible. This is the way God talks. If you use those words, you're using words God uses. I don't have to figure that out. That's a good thing. And, but those words don't, they're not gendered at all. And they're not imminent words particularly. So I needed to mix them with words from a different kind of source. And I reached, I thought this was a crazy idea. It wasn't my idea. But I uh, reached for Cosmopolitan magazine articles. And when I was given that idea, I was like, this is crazy, but I'm only going to do it if like, I can't just take a random Cosmo article and a random piece of Isaiah and do this. There has to be some connection between the text. And what are the chances that there will be any connections between Cosmo articles and the book of Isaiah? Seems improbable to me. So I, I kind of told the Shekhinah, we'll do this at the test. I went to the website of Cosmo and I took one of my favorite late Isaiah Quotes in the voice of God, God says, Sing out, O barren one who has not given birth. And I typed barren into the Cosmo search bar. I thought, this, People don't use this word. This is going to show this won't work. And immediately what came up was an article called Why This Queen, Why This Woman is Proud to Be Known as the Pageant Queen Without a Uterus. And I thought, Oh my God. The Shekhinah is known as a queen. She does not have a uterus. I guess I have been shown that I was wrong. My skepticism was wrong. This can work. And so now I have to learn how to make it work. So I would just take words from each of these texts and mush them together until I started to hear a voice and until that voice started to say things that I started to recognize. And there was a lot of learning that was required and a lot of the tutoring because the Shekhinah, all I really knew about her was that she's really not human, but she really is with us and she knows everything. So how do you use human language to convey somebody who 
is outside time and space, but nonetheless with us in every moment that we're experiencing. What is a person like that talking? What the heck do they say? So, yeah, that, that was my spiritual journey in relation to the Shahina. And I got some lessons which were, which were great, like some glimpses of how she sees things. Mm. I have so many questions. This is fascinating to me. And I think the, um, the combination of Isaiah with cosmopolitan is, is, is brilliance, just brilliance. And, um, what it makes me think of is, well, why, why wouldn't she, if she is with us and among us, and why wouldn't she be dwelling among the pages of cosmopolitan or every, any, anywhere else? Right. Um, but I have a question related to that, which is, um, okay, here's what I wrote down while you were talking. But I would say yes. I just want to yeah. say yes there. That okay. Our world is mostly, I would say, gendered secular, the world that most of us spend most of our time in. And secular, by definition, means we live it as though there is no divine presence. Mm. That does not mean that the divine is not present. And it does not mean that we can't recognize the divine presence through this world that is gendered secular. Mm, yes. Well, and that, so in my own research and just trying to understand how the goddess has shown up sacred fit, well, we don't have to use the term goddess, like, right, that's a, a loaded term, but how this apparently gendered aspect of God that shows up as feminine, how that's shown up in the past. And there's this idea that seems to come up repeatedly of, um, eminence and as opposed to transcendence, like you already ref you referred to this, right? So, uh, there's the, okay. So I was raised in a conservative Christian household. So God's up here. He is removed from us. He didn't have anything to do with like, he made us all. And now he's hanging out up here on a sky cloud, judging us for getting it wrong. And we need to get to church and pray, um, and feel guilty because he, you know, he sent his son and we screwed up and didn't appreciate his son. And so he killed him. And that's really our fault. Sorry, Christians. That was kind of my interpretation, but as opposed to eminence, which is um, that the goddess, divine feminine, um, is not the maker. She is, she is the earth. She is all the things. And so my question for you is, what I wrote down is, where do you end and God begins? Because if she dwells among us, does that mean she is also within you? Are you an aspect of her or do you still see her as perhaps walking beside you and among us, but not, does the dwelling apply to ourselves and our souls too? That is such a fantastic question. Hmm. So as I was, as I was working on these poems, like I say, I did not have the, the theological thinking I'd done had not been in this genre, so I just didn't have the intellectual or really the spiritual tools or elevation to do this. And one that's one of the questions, particularly because from the first, the Shekhina seemed to, number one, be with each of us. I knew that she was, all of the poems were talking to a you, and it was a singular you, but it was a you that she meant to represent each of us. Because she sees us from the inside out, she feels like she only needs one singular you. It'll apply equally to all of us. We just don't look that different from the inside out. 
And she wants us to know that she knows us. So her form of eminence, which is different than the eminence of being the earth, and you know, there's a real absence of God as nature or goddess as nature in this book. This mm -hmm. is not there, but it's in many ancient traditions that include the divine feminine. Mm -hmm. So that's not what, what the Shekhinah was, was on about in this. What she's saying is she wants to prove to each of us that she really is there, that she really does know us. She wants us to see how she sees us. She wants to invite us to see ourselves the way she sees us. Her imminence, because it's not bounded by separate selves, and it's not bounded by time and space, is a form of transcendence. So the first binary that she melts is the transcendence imminence binary. Mm -hmm. And actually, I guess the first one that she melted was when she said, yes, yeah, through the idea that the male aspect of God gets goodies of divinity that I don't get, you know? Mm. We all, you know, can't be divine without having power, without having a voice, without having all of the attitude, apparently. Um, so, so, she, so she's melting this eminence transcendence binary. But then I realized as she's talking about what she means, she, she wants us to know that she's there, that she really knows us, which I found scary. In fact, I didn't, as I was revising the poems, I was always looking to try to figure out how to get rid of the language that was just me pretending and get to the stuff that was really something that was beyond, that was the project. And I realized the only way to be sure was when I was starting to get scared. I would have to see myself as the you who's being spoken to. Everything that was being said would have to be at least true for me or it couldn't be true for everybody in any way if it wasn't true for me. And it would have to scare me. Mm. And so, she's scaring me and then i'm realizing as the poems are going it's a specific thing that's scaring me it scares me to be seen utterly and completely it scares me to be known from the inside out but the thing that scared me most of all was that she keeps saying i see you completely i know you utterly and i love you because you are growing out of me and I'm growing out of you. My presence in the world is partly happening through you. Your presence in the world is my presence. Your life is my life. It's a way that I live. And so, you know, when I'm loving you, I'm inviting you to see yourself as I see someone who, who I intended to exist when the world was me. I loved you long before you. And you know, you can't be here without me. And because you're here, I'm here. And because I'm here, you're here. So she doesn't dissolve the distinction. It doesn't, she doesn't become a, and therefore you're just God and you know, we are all just oneness. Judaism doesn't do that because God, for a reason, on bad days, I can't understand it all. God in Judaism sees relationships as sacred. Relationships between human beings are sacred. That's where most of the commandments that God gives are about how human beings should relate to one another mm -hmm. because those are seen as having direct bearing 
on on the universe and on God's presence in it. But also God really wants to talk and be with human beings. Remember that sense that I had as a kid. You know, I love people, I want to be with them, I want the so the Shekhina is driven by she doesn't want me to stop being and just dissolve into her divinity and even into her love. She wants me to be me, but to be me in a way that no longer is predicated on not being her. Be me in a way that is not, you know, my life was really based on being a lovable person. I think that's true of a lot of people, but I think if you are different in ways that your society doesn't understand or doesn't like, it's especially hard to feel. Although my theory is that most human beings feel somewhat level. If people really knew who I was, they might not feel love. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the Shekhinah is more like Mr. Rogers, where, you know, I, I like you the way you are. I don't want you to cease to be you. I want you to be you in a relationship with me where you know you are utterly seen and known and loved. And therefore, I want you to see yourself as even as I'm the womb out of which you're emerging, I want you to understand that you're the womb through which I'm emerging. Because I don't get to live your life without you living your life. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. It's Yes, it's fascinating to me. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people on this show over the last few years. And so my brain is kind of going through, um, like, you know, for example, um, get like these little tendrils again, multiplicities, right. And similarities, you know, so, but there's little tendrils that in ways that I'm not going to accurately describe. So I'm not, I'm just not even going to try, but like there are tendrils of it, for example, that remind me of things that I had a, a guest who's um, pretty deep into, um, Hindu uh, spirituality and just like the nature of, um, Shakti and the idea of, um, us being intertwined with divinity and that divinity is, you know, I don't know that she would say this, so I'm going to, this is my own interpretation, which I may have gotten wrong, but, but that the divinity is ever expanding and that expansion includes through us. It is us like that. So, right. We, we need each other or, we are the same and we need each other. I, yes, yes. Um, and I do think there's, there are religious spiritual paths that lead toward oneness, just leave all difference behind. And there are spiritual paths that delight in difference, that say difference doesn't have to be painful and tragic and make us feel like separation. Difference, I mean, I think the dance is one of, um, Hinduism's great metaphors for human divine relationships and also divinity. Yes. yes. And, you know, dances really kind of suck if there's just one person in the universe. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and I, I have a question too about, um, so we're talking about the the Shekinah and I'm, I'm sorry for my lack of the huh. Um, hey, you could. I, you just could. I just did it, didn't I? That was, okay. I'm, I'll have to practice that. Uh, but no, I'm wondering if, is the, the she for Shekinah situational? Meaning, were we not where we are in this moment where, for whatever reason, the transcendent God has been um, mm. expressed as male and he, mm. um, 
would we even need to put the she on Shekinah if that were not the case? Would she just be they or a different aspect of God that has gotten um, lost, perhaps, and that we put the she on her because there's that correlation that we see or okay. or cause, I guess, like uh, causation, perhaps, of um, loss of uh, the, the feminine principle or elevation of misogyny. Um, does that make sense today? Yeah. Okay. You asked the best questions. And I'm going to say yes and no. So I think that there is a way to come to the Shekhinah or to the divine feminine through the way of misogyny. Mm. You know, you say, well, my way of understanding myself is as a female person. My experiences are gendered female. My sense of existence, of what it means and what's important is all come to me through embodiment and experience as a female person. And I feel locked out and estranged of and estranged from ways of relating to God that assume that God is male, that only recognize and value male metaphors for God, Male, uh, male human experiences, like when we say God is king, what the heck are we talking about? What we're saying is, well, the head male is a good analogy for God. But we don't say God is queen because, well, the only reason is misogyny. We're not saying right. God is also queen. If they're just both metaphors, God is neither queen nor king. Right. So the way of misogyny can create a real deep sense of spiritual wounding that doesn't, you know, and if it doesn't kill off your longing for connection, one of the ways of healing and feeding that longing is by searching for and putting yourself in relation to the divine feminine, either by just saying, look, actually, my existence as a woman is sacred. And the it's a source of ways of knowing the divine, right? My experiences of being in the world as, as a woman, the ideas that, are, that surround womanhood, at least the good ones, maybe even some of the bad ones, maybe even my sense of vulnerability, because I think the divine, to the extent that it depends on us to be witnessed and engaged with and voiced, is extremely vulnerable. And the patriarchal God is not allowed to be vulnerable. Yeah. with the exception of the occasional crucifixion, you know. Um, however, our image of female is of constant vulnerability because of misogyny. So some of God, and this is something that uh, Jewish feminist theologians um, are very clear about, is that whenever we get to a patriarchal God by excluding women, from our definition of what it means to be human. Our idea of what it means to be a fully human is male. And so all our ways of knowing God through humanity, which are the only ways we really have access to, because we also still have like, direct access to divinity, um, they're all male ways. And that's, you know, they're limited by our culture. They're limited by a whole bunch of things. When we expand the definition of humanity to include women, we have access to many more ways of knowing God. Mm -hmm. And so when women 
say to themselves, I hunger for contact with the divine. I'm locked out by patriarchal religious traditions. So, but I know that's not all there is. I'm gonna look for, put myself in relation to the divine feminine. One of the radical things they're doing is they're saying, I'm fully human. And therefore my life is as much a source of understanding of the divine and it has as much potential to bring be a place where God happens and a place where God is recognized as anybody else's life. So that I think is one way to the divine feminine. But that wasn't my way because, you know, I never bought the God as male stuff. To me, that was, as a small child, it was just risible. Mm. You know, if, so it was a hunger for something else. It was yeah. a hunger for ways of knowing God, for aspects of God, for this sense of imminence, which is something I knew the word imminence, you know. I love, I've always liked big words. Mm. Um, but I just had never thought about it that way. And the, the way that I related to God's presence was not exactly like this. Um, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what I was missing. I just knew that I was hungry for it. So it didn't come out of a wound. It just came out of a sense of wanting more of a relationship with the divine. Hmm. Hmm. Well, and one of the things that you said early on that I just find so fascinating is that, um, you know, you were describing your feeling as a child of being different, being other, and that you didn't, it, well, and I want you to confirm this, but you didn't project that onto your understanding of God, which I think is so common, at least, you know, I can talk about from my own experience, it becomes like, I am not worthy. I am different. And so therefore I am not worthy of love. And that gets projected onto divinity. God doesn't love me. Like, I think, and I feel like you see that in conservative Christian traditions quite a lot, evangelical traditions um, of people feeling completely rejected by God. And so I find it both beautiful and fascinating that that wasn't your experience. Even though you ex were experiencing this intense longing and not even wanting to be alive, it sounds like you weren't putting that on divinity rejecting you. Is that, did I get that right? Yes, you did. And it's a bit of a mystery. I mean, I think in some ways I wasn't dealt the best card, hand of cards. There was emotional abuse in my family and there was the trans thing, you know. But in this one way of having a sense of God's presence, I really hit the jackpot as a kid, and it was not because I earned it. You know, I was not spiritually elevated or spiritually disciplined or fasting or praying. And, you know, I was at least as morally sucky as any of the other kids my age. Um, you know, so it wasn't something that I deserved. It was something that I, that God was just there. So I imagined, when I imagined, what we now call coming out to people. I just imagined myself being seen as monstrous or unlovable, that people would not want to be with me. I didn't really have clear sense of it, but kids in my generation who came out as trans, sometimes they were experimented on, 
sometimes they were institutionalized, just like kids today. Many of them were beaten up by their parents, driven out of their homes, you know, abused, stigmatized, homeless, whatever. You know, there were not a lot of happy things. I did, mostly didn't know them. I just knew my family, and I thought they will see me, and they will, they will not want to be with me, and neither will anyone else. But God was always there. God did know who I was. And God was always there. It wasn't even the word love. And love was hard for me because, because of the emotional abuse. I didn't know. And, and because of feeling trans. So on the one hand, the, there was emotional abuse. So, you know, when love is mixed with hurt, it's hard to really learn the right stuff about what love is. Yeah. And on the other hand, because of being trans, I felt like even if you're loving me right now, you don't know who I am. You have no clue who's standing here. You wouldn't love me if you knew. So I think in some ways, the human ideas about love that were so messed up, they, they didn't get projected easily onto God because the basic thing was presence and God was there. God was just not going away. And there was a problem because I couldn't imagine God's love. I did as a child. I would project all kinds of awful stuff. It's filled with self-hatred. I thought, you know, the reason that, you know, what was wrong with the universe was me. It was a frequent voice in my head. But, but so I would project that onto God, but God just didn't act that way. Hmm. Because unlike the other people, God knew who I was and God just kept being there. I think mm -hmm. if I'd had a healthy idea of love, I would have said, wow, God really loved me. But instead, it's just like, wow, you're really here. And, and to me, that was like, you know, you must be lonely too. Mm -hmm. You know, there, and I do think that there is a divine loneliness in relation to creation you know, a wanting to be known that is represented in many different religious traditions, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a divine loneliness. And I thought, you know, you're here with everybody and they don't see you. They don't know that you're with them. I know how that feels. I get that. And so we're kind of akin. So I didn't, I wasn't capable of translating into God loves me. But it was more like we're two of a kind and we're shipwrecked outside of humanity, a humanity that we love. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like that early understanding of God for you was what you call the Shekinah now. Would you agree with that? Yeah, although it wasn't, see, it hadn't been separated into imminence and transcendence. So. Hmm. When I was writing the Shekhinah poems, I had to learn that the imminence, because I knew what it, I knew what imminence was, I had to learn through the poems that that imminence was this form of transcendence, you know, to get yeah, that yeah. have that binary note. But when I was a kid, I knew that this being that was beyond time and space and humanity was there with me. So it wasn't like there was a conflict between transcendence and eminence. It made it very hard to relate to, to God. God is really not a fun playmate when you're a kid. Um, 
that's kind of how lonely I was. And when I had kids to play with, I was not sitting, I wasn't saying, no, I don't want to, you know, do Hot Wheels cars now. I want to sit around and talk to God. I was not that kind of kid. Um, but so I was just there with something that was huge and beyond me and wouldn't go away and, and wanted to be there with me. Um, it was imminence and transcendence, I guess, all at once, but really it was just God. And there was only one real word that I had for God. I mean, I use the word God all the time, but the only real word that I have for God is you. God was my you. Mm. Wow. And I notice when you say God, that you don't say he or she, or I hear you say God, just God repeatedly. Um, can you, can you talk about that? Like, again, I think it's a, I, it's natural, right? We relate to our own experiences, but, um, you know, for me growing up in a Baptist household, God, it was just a given that that word meant he, it just, that's just what it, it's just what it was. Um, and it seems like, at least in the way you talk about now, like, even if we take our conversation about the Shekinah aside, like it seems there's a very intentional thing that you're doing if you're not saying God is he or she. And I wonder if you could speak to that. And is that an experience for you? Or is that something that you feel like is um, inherent to Judaism? Uh, good question. So again, I didn't grow up with people talking about God very much, you know, so I was spiritually lonely also. But when I learned the language that people used about God, it was this masculinized language, which to me always was like, it was part of the pretending thing that I was doing, pretending into pretending to be male, pretending gender. It's like, God I'm hanging out with does not fit into this pronoun. So the, the blessing of growing up in spiritual isolation was that my relationship with God, God as I experienced God, was the basis for my understanding of God. And when I encountered other people's ideas that didn't fit that, I was like, yeah, that's not what's going on. I mean, it just never occurred to me to give up my own experience, mm. which again, like I grew up believing that I couldn't be with, that nobody would accept me in the community if they really knew who I was. So mm. it's, there are reasons why people agree to dissolve their own experiences of the divine into a religious community, even when it's a hurtful one, mm. because there are good things about community and there are ways we can encounter God through and with other people in a community that are not possible alone. So part of my deal was I got one very good thing about relating to God, but not the other thing. Many people, it's more normal for people to get socialized into communities. And then you have to find your way through the crap that goes along with communities because communities always mistake their human social stuff for sacred stuff. And mm. then you find your way through that to actual experiences of God. That's, but I, I had it the other way around and I've never really gotten back to the community. My sense of community never developed. But when I was, you know, for a long time, I would use male pronouns for God. And then at a certain point, I realized I'm out of the closet. I'm living as myself. I, I don't need to, to do this anymore. And in fact, I need to 
you have an obligation to that, that witnessing of God. I have to find language, even though it's stylistically tedious, for a poet that matters, but I have to, to find and model language that shows that we can have God without gender. We're not dependent, we don't lose God when we lose the heat. Mm. At the same time, the Shekhinah taught me, we can find, we do use gender metaphorically as ways to create rich, specific kinds of relationships with God that reveal different aspects of the divine. It's not that gender is gendered language for God is a bad thing. It's just a bad thing when we conflate God with human gender. That's idolatry. God gets lost in gendered ideas. Mm. And I, I don't want that. Yes, I'm so glad you said that because the thing that's kind of been playing in my head, and I'm like, how that. A lot of times I have these thoughts and I'm like, are they going to coalesce into a question? Or are they just going to kind of float here? And if people have been listening to the show for a while, they'll know I, I sometimes ask messy questions and it's just that I've got the thoughts and they're not quite coming out. But um, I was reflecting as you've been talking on one of the things that I feel like I have seen in this study and exploration of what I call the sacred feminine over the last several years is that for, um, for many women, I see, um, it's a very empowering thing to find this aspect of divinity that they know in female form and to see that that is a historical fact in many traditions and also a very living thing in many traditions. If you look around now, you can, you can find it. It's not like something that died 10,000 years ago. It's, it's present. Hinduism is a great example. Um, any tradition coming out of Africa, another really good example. Um, but what I see sometimes is that, um, and I, I, I will say I, I can recognize it because it's happened in myself. Okay. So I name it for myself too. The a clinging to now I know God and God is really feminine, female and, and only female. And so now I feel threatened when you talk about God as a he, and now I feel threatened by transgender people, perhaps who might experience God as completely non-gendered or, or whatever. Um, and that there's a, a locking in and a holding there and what started out as perhaps a healing impulse, which is, I want to find myself as sacred. I want God to see me as sacred in this form that I was born in and that are not born in, I guess, but that I identify with, um, that there's a danger in getting stuck, like with my humanity being tied up to God's identity. And that's where this whole sort of messy thing, and maybe it doesn't have to be messy, but in my head, it's messy of eminence, yeah. transcendence, like, you know, all kind of tangling together. Um, it gets, it gets tricky. One of the things that you can see in the Hebrew Bible, and I think, I don't know the New Testament, hardly at all, but I believe it's there also, is that when God has relationships with human beings, when we're in relationship to God, those are human relationships. It's like when you relate to your cat, those are cat relationships. The cat will not relate to you on your terms. <laughs> the cat can't do that. A dog might try. A dog might try. <laughs> and yet the dog will never be invited to your podcast, although it unquestionably has experiences of the divine. That's true. I will say my dog has, you know, snored in the background of podcasts in the past, but he wasn't invited. He, anyways, yes. <laughs> yes. But, you know, our limitations mean that we can only relate to God in human terms and God can only relate to us 
through human terms. Yeah. It also means, though, that our experience of human relationships can teach us a lot about our relationships with the divine. And one of the things that I know, that I think all of us know, is that when you attach to somebody, when you feel close to them, and often it's through gender that we do that, I would say that's the norm, right? When I, my yeah. kids were born, I knew I was trans, but I totally related to them in terms of, oh, it's a boy, it's a girl, their whole lives, I could see them, you know, just like yes. anybody else. It was part of the intimacy. When my youngest transitioned, I was, it was a shock to me because i had to then separate my relationship my attachment to them from their gender so one of the things about gender relationships is their ways of coming close to people which both which heighten some aspects of that they enable us to share certain things a lot and they make it harder to share other things but with all relationships that matter to us, I think there's anxiety. I think there's fear of being abandoned, or of losing, and, and then we cling, right? So I know as a parent, I, I wanted my kids to grow up. There were some early developmental issues. I never wanted my kids to stay little babies because I had a glimpse of what that might be like. And I didn't want that. But I also, it was heartbreaking to watch them change and grow away from me, which is exactly what they were supposed to do. And in yeah. response to those anxieties, as they would remind me in no uncertain terms, I would cling to immature forms of them. Hmm. And I think that we do the same with God because our relationships with God are human relationships. So when we feel close to God in certain terms, we mistake the terms that enable us, help us feel close to God, for God's presence in our lives, for the divine, for our access to it. It's very, it's easy, it's normal. Mm. And it's all, they're all so cozy. And I would say the same about my own, you know, when I'm thinking, oh God, you're lonely like me, you're shipwrecked outside of humanity. You're doing the same thing. I'm taking my experience of gender and I'm turning it into a mode of relationship with God that says, through the idea of this shared relationship, I can feel close to you because in some way you're like me and mm -hmm. I can know things about you which actually are aspects of God. Mm -hmm. Since you know God is so much, it's, it's almost like you can't miss. You know, anything you've got in any terms is gonna give you something about God. Yes. No, no terms will give you actually God. They only work. It's just like, you know, windows don't give you what you're looking at, but they enable you to glimpse it and they, they limit and they enable you. And that's what our terms and that's what our gender terms are. Do we need them? Well, I sure do. You know, and I think the Shekhinah really taught me that even if I hadn't known it before. So I do not want to diss anybody's gendered ways of relating to God. That's awesome. But if you start fearing or believing that God actually just fits inside those terms, you're losing God and replacing it with idolatry. And the advantage that idols have is they're stable. They stay right where you put them. Mm -hmm. They never surprise you. They never scare you. Yeah. They just reflect back to you your own ideas. And we like our own ideas. I'll speak personally. I'm very happy to fall in love with my own ideas. And it, 
bothers me every time God requires me to let go of my beloved conceptions mm. and realize that there yeah. is a, a largeness beyond. Yes, I have said on the show before too to people that I feel like anytime I think I've got something fixed uh, in my head and I refer to her as she, it's like, yeah. it's almost like she's got an invitation to be like, nope, I'm going to pull the rug out from under you right now. Like, oh, are you comfortable? Let me take care of that for you. <laughs> um, which is a gift in a way. It's a, it's a challenging gift, but it is a gift. It is a total gift. It's because of the reality of the divine presence. And it also shows that when we're afraid of losing God, if we let go of this or that way of relating to God or this and that, that term of God, what the Shekhinah keeps saying in these poems and what I think the divine says in so many different ways is ultimately it doesn't matter. My presence does not depend on your awareness. You would actually be stuck in a universe without God if my presence depended on your awareness. That's what secularism would have done. That's the nightmare of traditional religions. Often say we were afraid that secularism will create a universe that is emptied of the God that animates and orders our lives. No, God's like, you know, I'm not dependent on you that way. I'm not going away. And we do have a model of that. You know, I had a kid with colic, a baby with colic. I was trying to finish my dissertation. And so I held a screaming child in one arm, typed with the other. And she would just scream for hours and hours and hours. And all I wanted to do, all I could do for her was show I'm not going away. I know it hurts. I can't do anything to stop it from hurting. I can't reach you or communicate because you're lost in this pain. But by golly, you are going to know that I'm here and I'm not going away. And that's what the Shekhinah is saying to us. You know, however screwed up you may be, however confused or lost or anxious or angry or shamed, I'm here with you and I'm not going away. Mm. There's something so beautifully, I don't know if this is the right word, but there's something so beautifully tragic about that to me. Like the idea that I'm looking at the windows here and, and that, you know, I so desperately want to know God, and yet all I will know is this windowed view. There's something so heartbreakingly beautiful about that. I don't know any other way to say it. I could cry. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a powerful, and that's the human experience, isn't it? I mean. And to get back to your Hindu guess, that is the way that God grows through us, because God can only be seen as each of us see God by mm -hmm. It is our limitations and our particularities that enable God to be known and not lost and revealed in the particular ways we do without all of the, you know, without our window frames mm. and our terms and our limitations, the particular way that we relate to God that God gets to manifest through us would not be possible. So God literally kind of grows in variegation, not in terms of oneness. The oneness of God doesn't change. Yeah. God doesn't, isn't diminished by deaths, not increased by verse. But the richness, like if you think about a brain, our, as our brains grow, they have more folds in them. You know, the physical shape of the brain reflects our experiences that, right, it's kind of, 
this oneness of God gets all of these folds and wrinkles and and richness hmm. through the limited creatures, which I'm guessing, I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure if I were God, if I would have actually done the whole creation thing, but I'm guessing it's got to be one of the things that God likes about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead, please. No, 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 please. no, go ahead. I was... Um... I know I was just thinking about, you know, who would God be without that never ending, uh, who, who would God be without that never ending cycle of creation that just seems to be endless. Like you could apply that to the universe, right? It's ever expanding. We know that, um, who might God be? It sounds kind of boring without it, but what do I know? I'm not God. Right. You know, our, our metaphor from cosmology might be, you know, the singularity that maybe was not beginning of all existence, but it seems to be the beginning of our existence. It's a state when there really is undifferentiated, there isn't even matter and energy. It's just, yeah. it's so hot. It's just one thing and there are no structures. And then there's this journey outward, but held by gravitation. I had a cosmologist explain this to me, that enables this undifferentiated oneness to variegate. But it doesn't just turn into entropy. It doesn't just turn into dust. It turns into all of these structures because there is also the attraction. There's also the gravitation. There's, so there's simultaneously an impulse toward absolute oneness, an impulse to, toward absolute expansion, which is also a form of oneness and emptiness, but an impulse toward variegation and structure, relationship, difference. One, the things which give rise to what we think of as the wonders of our world and the wonders of one another. We don't get those without this variegation. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna ask if it might be time to read a poem. Yes, I think it is. I've actually gone over time with you and I'm just so into this conversation. I, I don't know, Joy, maybe if it if it would bring you joy, maybe you might come back and come for a second round. Cause I feel like I could talk to you for hours. So maybe some point down the road. Yeah. Okay. I think you said I would love that, but it cut out. Did you say that? I said I would love that. Okay, good. <laughs> yes. Well, that's, um, I would love to hear you read a poem um, from your book, Shakina Speaks. So this is a poem called Your Body and It relates to a lot of the wonderful questions that you were asking about. And I think questions that maybe all of us have is like, if God's here, what is God doing with us? And what are we doing with God? And what does God get out of all this? Is who we are getting in the way or is it whatever? So I've had particular issues with my body. So I took this one personally. Um, The Isaiah chapter is 66 in the, the epigraph is, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? So some of the words came from that chapter. And some came from a Cosmo article called Inside the Scam of the Purity Movement. Hmm. Your body. You keep trying to escape the body I love. The blazing crush of physicality, impurity, and shame separating you from yourself, from your soul, from me, the body I formed in your mother's womb, delivered, 
dandled, nursed and comforted, the body that fails you in so many ways, through which you struggle to materialize, the way tomorrow struggles to materialize through today, blessing through pain, love through the flesh I made, to be a place where you and I can rest, hang out, go crazy for one another, marry, say goodbye, apologize, consume and burn like incense, can plead, pledge, proclaim, be held and protected, given and accepted, born and born again. It's me you feel moving inside you, my presence but so hard to reconcile with your sexual nature and the nature of sex. Sometimes you feel violated, devoured, tell yourself that you're no good. Imagine me demanding you preach gospels of fire, gospels of bone, gospels of coming to an end. I didn't make you to end. I made you a whirlwind of appetites and offerings I never stop wanting. Ceremony and sacrifice, wine and reckoning, comedy, coolness, birthing and healing, falling in love, romance, yes, and sex. Your body is a stream from which I drink, a hand I hold, a nipple I lick, a story I tell over and over, a Sabbath I keep for pleasure, a way of being alone, a way of being together, my choir, my throne, my crazy music, my dog-eared paperback. Wow. I, I hear her. I hear her. I mean, I, there is, I don't know how to, I don't know how to say it, but I feel that there is a voice, a voice of the sacred feminine that, you know, I have, I've heard in different ways and through different traditions and different experiences. And I, I hear her, I hear her in those words. I really do. So powerful. She has a voice. Um, yeah. And for me, I'm talking about, there's a, there's a transcendent piece to that too. There's a big, she like a, she that's that, you know, bigger than just, um, our own religious traditions or anything. And I, yeah, I hear her. I hear her in every one of your, your poems. It's just so special. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you yeah. so much for this conversation. Yes, this has been, this is like food. This is just like the most delicious meal I could eat. That's how I feel. This is like nourishment for my soul. Thank you so much for your time uh, and your, um, just your generosity of, of thoughts and reflections. I'm so, I'm so grateful. Gratitude is mutual. And please do come back if you'd like. I'd love to have you. I would like, I will, the day when you invite me back will be a happy day for my thoughts. <laughs> Hooray. Okay. So wonderful. Mm. Well, and thank you to all of you for listening. As always, I'm so grateful. These conversations are so much more meaningful because somebody else is out there, you know, receiving them. And, um, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, but uh, if, if you like the show, you can subscribe, you can tell your friends, you can leave it a favorable review. You can do all those things if it suits you. And until next time, take good care of yourself. And I will talk to you again soon. is hosted by me, Liz Kelly. You can visit me online at hometoher.com. 
where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the Sacred Feminine. And you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at Home to Her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here soon.